Bonjour. I'm Terence Galenter, your American friend in Paris, coming to you almost live from Café Terence in Paris's 3e arrondissement. Today and every Saturday, I will be joined by colleagues to discuss books, movies, and song. And at the finale of every broadcast, I will sing a selection from the American Songbook. Bonjour, I'm Terence Galenter, your American friend in Paris, and my guest today is James Kaplan, author of Irving Berlin, American Genius, and a two-part acclaimed biography of Frank Sinatra, The Voice and the Chairman. James, welcome to Paris. And you said you love Paris, and yes. I indicated that uh, this was one of the 1,500 songs that, uh, that Irving did not write. There are many more than 1,500 that he did not write. And I Love Paris, of course, was written by his, his great friend and fellow genius. Yes. And one of the only, uh, and there are a lot of geniuses in that profession, but one of the only geniuses along, uh, along with Berlin who wrote music and lyrics. And lyrics, we, right. We, we I wrote Frank Lesser in there, too, by the way. Yeah, he was, he was a great friend of uh, Harold Arlen, or Chaim Arlach, as we knew him in Buffalo. Yeah. Uh, and also Jerry Kern. Yes, the great Kern. Kern. Yes. Uh, and, and when Annie, uh, well, I don't know why I'm so loud. Uh, when Annie, Annie got his gun, when uh, Kern uh, had his stroke, uh, Irving came in and, uh, and fixed it. Yes, but there was a real saga to that. I mean, it was a, it was a tragic loss of turn, Kern at a very young age. Uh, 61, I believe. 61, you know, just walking up Park Avenue to have lunch with his wife and falls to the pavement and nobody can identify who he is. He's unconscious. Mm. He has a cerebral hemorrhage. And a week later, he's gone at the age of 61, uh, one of the great geniuses. And... Uh, so suddenly Rodgers and Hammerstein, uh, who are producing in this case and not writing uh, this show, Annie Oakley, uh, need, badly need a, uh, a composer. And uh, the first person all of them think of, that is Rodgers, Hammerstein, and Herbert and Dorothy Fields, who wrote the libretto, was Berlin, except that Berlin wrote lyrics and Dorothy and Herbert Fields wrote lyrics, but they yielded the field to Irving wisely. Well, I, I think that... Uh there was a, a, almost an, not an incestuous relationship, but to some degree, these guys all knew each other. They all came from very similar backgrounds. And uh, I, I thought it was Jerry Generous in his part not, uh, you know, not to uh, require credit, extra credit, uh, and let uh, Dorothy have a lot, of, uh, a lot of the renown for that. Yes. Uh, actually, in that case, uh, because uh, not to get too much in the weeds about it, but because Rogers and Hammerstein were producing, uh, unlike other shows that Berlin, and movies that Berlin had been involved with, it could not be listed as Irving Berlin's Annie Get Your Gun. Right. But the generosity came in when it came to the profits and Berlin insisted on uh, on Herbert and Dorothy Fields uh, getting a larger cut than the contract had specified. Uh, simply because they had done such a magnificent job on the libretto and because they had been involved since the beginning and because he respected them so much. Right. And that was, that was very unusual in that business. And it was unusual for Berlin, too, because he had, he had pretty sharp elbows when it came to competition. Well, we'll talk about that later, but his relationship with RKO and why Frank Freeman and Louis B. Mayer. But we can 
talk about his tough as nails uh, business acumen, uh, but being a mensch uh, under normal circumstances. Yes. Why don't we go go back to the beginning? This is a five-year-old Yiddish-speaking uh, Russian boy arrives at Ellis Island. So talk about that odyssey. <clears throat> well, they arrive like hundreds of thousands, if not millions. Uh, by millions of other Eastern European Jews, uh, the great, uh, the great exodus in the 1880s and 1890s and er very early 1900s. This family named Baleen, uh, just uh, dirty, starving, dirt poor, uh, eight of them all together, two parents, six kids, uh, getting off the boat September 1893. By the way, in the middle of a financial crisis in the United States. 1893. 93. There are no jobs anywhere, and uh, it is very, very hard at the outset. And then, and then, a few years later, uh, gets much harder because the ostensible breadwinner, uh, Moses, the father of the family, uh, dies of tuberculosis, and and suddenly, it is just, uh, it is just the mom and the kids, and uh, they all, they're all working, but uh, young... Mom, mom and the kids was eight, ultimately, right? Uh, well, there were, uh, there, were they, there were eight kids, but two had come over previously to America. So there were, uh, uh, the, the people who got off the boat in September 1893 were, uh, uh, were Mr. and Mrs. Baleen and six kids. Okay. Uh, when Izzy's father dies, Izzy is 14 years old, and he feels at once that he is a financial drag on the family. He's, he's going to school. He's not making much of any money, sells a few newspapers here and there. And he does this unbelievable thing, something that is unimaginable under uh, in, today. He, he leaves home. He leaves home and goes out to live on the street in the Bowery in, uh, in New York City in, uh, in 1902. And uh, it is, it's just an inconceivable thing. He makes his living at first busking on the street and very quickly gets a job as a singing waiter at a place called the Pelham Cafe. Well, things jumped out at me when I read that particular portion of the book. Uh, you know, first of all, he's bar mitzvah at 13. Only you and I did not have to go out and support the family because uh, we were now considered to be men. Uh, yeah. But he did. <laughs> he did. Yeah. And he also realized that he had he'd learned enough in seven elementary grades of reading, writing, and history to actually take care of himself, which is remarkable to put yourself in the head of that kid. It's impossible to put myself in the head of that kid. <laughs> Very, very hard. And I had, by the way, I had, I had a huge amount of help or uh, a, a magnificent help in trying to put myself in the head of that kid. Uh, a great privilege to be able to interview uh, two, uh, Berlin's two surviving daughters, wow. uh, Mary Ellen and, and Linda. Mary Ellen in New York City and, and Linda in Paris. And Mary Ellen had written the biography. Uh, a, a beautiful memoir of her father, mm -hmm. yes. So they were, they were very supportive, I presume. They were all the way through the project, and, uh, and, and I, I don't think that it's boasting to say that they're big fans of the book. 
No, not I, I, I. Having read it, I can't. I can can't believe they wouldn't be. But also, it makes me wonder, uh, kind of the genesis of this book, since Furia and Jablonski in very very lengthy terms, and Alec Wolcott, who was a good friend of at the round table, had written much much earlier. Uh, what was that you discovered that? made you want to do this at, at this point? Or was this Yale and the Jewish Live series that approached you? Uh, Yale and the Jewish Live series approached me at first uh, without a subject in mind. Okay. They, they, uh, the editor uh, of the series, uh, then editor of the series, Eileen Smith, uh, approached me, uh, said she liked my work and would like me to do a book for the series. Uh, did I have any ideas? Uh, we had a couple of initial ideas that we mm -hmm. batted back forth. Uh, but then uh, one day, I pretty much got the proverbial uh, cartoon light bulb over my head and, and, uh, and thought about my, uh, my family's great love of, of show music. My mother, who graduated from music and art high school in New York City, used to, uh, used to love to play Berlin on the piano in our living room at home. I, I thought of Berlin. And she, lo she loved the piano, no doubt. She loved the piano, yes. Yeah. Oh yeah, and he knew, a fine, he knew a fine way to treat a Steinway. <laughs> well, exactly. Well, the lyrics are extraordinary, and you wonder with his seventh grade education, where did all of this sophistication? You know, he's not Cole Porter, but damn close. <clears throat> well, he was. He was a. He was. Uh, this was a genius. Geniuses occur. They mm -hmm. occur. There, it's a sort of spooky quantity when you get right down to it. But every once in a while, somebody pops out of nowhere. Who is who just has wild and magnificent and inexplicable things going on in, in his or her brain that makes makes him or her different from other people. And and Berlin was one of those people. Well, he, he made his bones in Tin Pan Alley. Everyone has heard the expression, but probably very few people know what it meant. What was Tin Pan Alley? Tin Pan Alley was a block, a couple of blocks, uh, just west of Madison Square. Uh, 28th Street, I believe it was, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and it was in those days streets in New York City. All streets in New York City were lined with brownstones, and those couple of blocks were lined with brownstones. Every one of which contained a music publisher, because uh, sheet music in those days, in the early 1900s in the United States, was a huge business. Everybody wanted to write songs and sell songs, and Every one of those music publishers had uh, cubicles in their offices. Uh, each cubicle had an upright piano and uh, a guy sitting there banging on the piano, uh, either having written a song himself or playing the music of somebody who had come in with a freshly written song. The windows were open and the streets uh, were ajar with the sound of cacophony coming from all these dozens of music publishers. And yeah. hence... Hence Tin Pan Alley. sounded like Tin Pan's being banged. Mm -hmm. And then he had, well, first he had Hurrah, which he called Hooray, I guess was his first major hit. Uh, yeah, My Wife's Gone to the Country, Hurrah. hurrah. Right. Sounds like uh, a Billy Wilder movie. It, uh, <laughs> it should have been. Yeah, it, it, yes, it really sold big time, and, uh, and he made some money. Uh, but... Previous to that, uh, he had he had written a song. Uh, 
it's a wild story. He had written a song uh, about uh, about an Olympic runner uh, uh, who who uh, who had been disqualified in the 1908 Olympics and uh, gone into a music publisher with it uh, and uh, played it. Uh, and and got a job at the music publisher, so he became uh, he became a uh, an in-house songwriter at this uh, music publisher on uh, on Tin Pan Alley, and uh, that was the beginning for him. And he was cranking out product for the music publisher, but more and more the product was better and better and less collaborative, more just Berlin himself mm-hmm. and. Very quickly, he became uh, the star, and then, uh, and then, with the tables turned, uh, the first name on the transom of that music publisher. And then, of course, he had the the, the huge breakthrough with uh, Alexander's Ragtime Band. Yeah, that is that is really uh, that's really the quantum leap. That's very difficult to understand or explain. That's 1911. Berlin is 23 years old. He's been working at the music publisher for a couple of years and doing well. He's making a good salary and making money on the side from the songs of his that sell, the sheet music. Uh, and, and now, since it's 1910, uh, the new technology of phonograph records has come in. So he's selling records as well. He's made enough money at the music publisher that he can uh, take, afford to take a vacation. So he decides to go down to Florida. It's the middle of winter. He's going to get on the train. Uh, at Penn Station, uh, go down to Florida. But before he gets on the train, he has this idea. Uh, he's had this song knocking around in his head for a couple of weeks. So he, he, he's he got a couple of hours before the train leaves. He goes over to the office. And uh, did I mention the fact that he neither read nor wrote music? Well, you're, you're in my head. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this is the way he wrote songs was there was, he, there was somebody called a musical secretary, somebody who really could read and write music, sitting at the piano. Berlin would hum the tune to the person. And he went back to the office and found a, a willing secretary sitting at a piano and hummed the tune he had in mind. The guy uh, began to play it uh, with chords, with harmony. Berlin would say yes if it was right or no if it was wrong. They got around to a version of the song that was correct. He also had a lyric in mind. He wrote that down on paper. Then he went to Florida on vacation. Well, the, the song turned out to be Alexander's Ragtime Band, and it's sort of inconceivable to us today how gigantic a phenomenon that was in the year 1911. Well, talk was, a little bit about the, uh, the evolution of music. You're beginning to get uh, a black influence seeping up from New Orleans, and not too long thereafter, Shuffle Along by U.B. Blake and Noble Sissel. What, yeah, was, what was going on that was beginning to trigger this sense of ragtime? There was a huge ferment, and uh, as with so many of it continues to this day, uh, African Americans were getting the short end of the stick. There was a genius uh, working uh, around the turn of the last century called Scott Joplin, mm-hmm. who's was uh, creating these magnificent uh, ragtime songs. Ragtime, uh, ragtime was a big fad in America, uh, and there were uh, there were uh, black exponents and white exponents. But it was it originated with black uh, black composers, and Scott Joplin was the genius of it. The funny thing, uh, and, and jazz was just around the corner, would, would pop up uh, right around uh, the end of World War I. Uh, and, and that, of course, came from African-American uh, uh, 
geniuses as well. But the funny thing about Alexander's Ragtime Band is that it's not, it's not a ragtime. It's more of a march than ragtime. It is, it's paying tribute in its way uh, to, to black composers and black, uh, black players of ragtime. Uh, and, and, and the, the terrible and, and uh, the terrible, the terrible thing is that Alexander uh, was then considered a, uh, a what? A humorously dignified name for an African-American man to have, Alexander being the, the leader of the band. So there was, there was a certain amount of backhanded compliment in this song, uh, but there was also a great deal of genius in this song. And it just, it ca caught on, uh, it caught on like, uh, like California wildfires around the United States and then across, very quickly across the Atlantic in England and all across Europe. It was the first, first international hit, really. And it was, it was really the beginning of the American century in many ways. Well, I wish they had cast Donna Michi and not Tyrone Power in the film. That would have felt more comfortable with, uh, with Don. Well, I wish they had cast uh, Chadwick. Uh, Bo well, that's, uh, that too, yeah, but at the uh, time. That, I mean, that, uh, that film, the film was, uh, it, it, was a hor it, it was a horrible lie. Uh, there, uh, there was not, I don't think there was a single uh, black person in that film uh, about called Alexander's Ragnarok. Well, you didn't believe all of uh, Jack Warner's uh, biopics as being 100% true? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, the Million Dollar Movie? Uh, yeah. Our, our history uh, lessons. But, yeah, you know, you talk you talk about African Americans and blacks, and I'm going to jump back and forth. Uh, but it reminds me uh, what a what a sweet liberal guy he was. And two things jump out at me uh, as thousands cheer his huge uh, this huge hit that featured Ethel Waters, Clifton Webb, Marilyn Maxwell, and Broderick Crawford's mother, Helen Broderick. Um, yeah. And those three people refused to take a bow with Ethel Waters. And so on opening night, uh, they were not permitted to take a bow. The second day they came back and they did. Well, and then, the, I'm sorry. The story is better than that. Uh, the, the story is they refused to take a bow with Ethel Waters, these three uh, white uh, players, uh, because she was black. Mm -hmm. And Berlin told uh, uh, Clifton Webb and, and Helen Broderick and uh, uh, Marilyn Maxwell. And Marilyn Maxwell, thank you, that, uh, that in that case there would be no bows at all. Right. <laughs> uh, and they, they quickly changed their mind. Ethel Waters was a, a force of nature. She was a phenomenon in that show, as thousands cheer. Uh, this, uh, this genius idea for a Broadway musical stemmed from the fertile minds of Berlin and, and the very young Moss Hart mm -hmm. uh, to, make a, uh, to make a Broadway musical uh, that was... Uh, essentially a newspaper, and every act of uh, the musical was a different section of the newspaper. So you had your weather report, mm -hmm. and there, uh, there is uh, the brilliant Ethel Waters singing Heat Wave. Heat wave. Uh, uh, but, but, act two, this, uh, this totally unexpected thing happens. Uh, there's a, a cute little, uh, first there's a cute little skit about a, uh, a society couple, a slightly ribald skit about this young society couple that is, it's their wedding day, and the skit opens with them in bed together, which was very scandalous in those, but they're not yet married, you see. 
So uh, the audience, well-heeled audience, uh, laughs, tee-hee-ha-ha at the funny little skit. And then suddenly a curtain comes down. And on the curtain in huge black letters, like a newspaper headline, is the caption, uh, Unknown Negro Lynched by Angry Mob. Mm. And was suddenly, it's like that moment in The Producers when springtime for Hitler is played and they show the audience and they're all sitting there like like loxes sure. with their mouths wide open. This is what that society audience was like because uh, Ethel Waters, first there's that dire headline, then Ethel Waters comes out and sings this song that Irving Berlin has written 10 years before uh, Strange Fruit. Uh, this song called Supper Time, and mm-hmm. it's a song about a lynching and being sung by Ethel Waters about her husband who ain't going to come home no more because he has been hung to a tree by a white mob. No, the audience was not ready. You know, and then in the Second World War, when he does this uh, this review for the, for the soldiers, which was enormously important, uh, he, he had apparently had two dozen African-American musicians and singers uh, and he described it as the only integrated unit uh, in the uh, American army. It is the literal truth, and Berlin uh, Berlin did it because he was, and not because he was such a bleeding-heart liberal, but because he was so brilliant commercially, he realized that if he wanted talent, uh, and every virtually every guy of the 300 in, in the cast of This is the Army was a professional— but if you wanted real talent, you can't leave African-American performers out of that equation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, be- before Branch Rickey, he understood. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I want to come back to, uh, well, right around that time, and we, we, I don't want to give short shrift to his first wife, Dorothy, who got sick and died on their honeymoon and yeah. led to the song, uh, When I Lost You. Yes, uh, a beautiful, beautiful song, uh, and and a strange song in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But it, it's really it's, uh, Berlin. Uh, they the year was nineteen twelve. Uh, Berlin was twenty four years old. Dorothy was all of twenty two. Uh, they get married. She's a beautiful young woman. They go to Havana on their honeymoon, and she comes down with typhoid and. Four months later, is dead. And so Berlin, at age 24, is a widower. He doesn't know what to do with it. The only thing he can think what to do uh, with it is to to write a song. And it was very difficult for him to write. He had all these flowery beginnings. Finally, pared it down with the greatest difficulty to the maximum simplicity uh, and and came came up with a with a beautiful standard. When I lost you, Frank Sinatra sang it. Mm it and and uh, and and Tony Bennett did it a cappella. It it just holds up. Uh, no, it's, it's it's a very touching song. And and you you mentioned simplicity, and you talked about that when he early on when he was beginning to develop his craft. It, it if to me it sounded like he was an editor editing Thomas Thomas Wolfe or someone. You know, it's not simple enough. It's got to be simpler, simpler. Less is less is more. Simple, less is more, and simple is, as any writer will tell you, mm-hmm. a writer of lyrics or any writer of anything, simple is unbelievably hard. And Berlin uh, Berlin said, uh, I sweat blood. Mm-hmm. He, he 
he was a night owl. He worked, tended to work from, do his best work between uh, 12 midnight, four or five in the morning. And while every, while the world was sleeping, Berlin was at his piano uh, with the musical secretary uh, by his side, sweating blood. You know, he uh, loved America, was very grateful for the opportunity. And of course, he wrote God Bless America, which ironically premiered on K. Smith's radio show November 10th, 1938, one night after Kristallnacht. Yes. Uh, just a, a, extraordinary, that song. Yes, an extraordinary song, an extraordinary time, a very, very dark time. And the song uh, became uh, much like uh, Alexander's Ragtime Band, only with the jet propulsion of radio now, mm-hmm. became an instant smash hit across the country. People started talking about it as uh, a new national anthem, which Berlin wouldn't have any of. He said, we are, already have it, an anthem. It's perfectly fine. But the, there was a backlash as well. Uh, uh, people loved the song, but a lot of people also hated Berlin. Uh, a great deal of prejudice uh, then as now, uh, but then it had to do with this war in Europe that was starting and that many isolationists in America didn't want America anywhere near, and they were blaming uh, Jews in America. Well, they were, were anti-Semites. To call them isolationists is a little bit uh, too, too generous on your part. Uh, You know, we have Fritz Kuhn in New York putting 20,000 people in Madison Square Garden. We have uh, Charles Lindbergh, as uh, Philip Roth uh, wrote in The uh, Conspiracy Against America. Very, very difficult times. And to uh, be writing that song, and which he wrote in first person. You know, it's, God bless America, land that I love. It It was him. He meant it deeply. He, yeah. he did. He, he did love America. He felt that he owed his entire success to America. No, and and I think people people saw that and felt it. Just as an aside, the royalties in that song were assigned to the Boy Scouts of America. Yeah, but let's not put it in the passive voice. Irving Berlin donated the royalties of that. Well, that's song. what I meant. No, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. No, but the girl. Boy Scouts of America. But what yeah. is happening to that now with all the, the Michigas with the BSA? Yes, there's, yes. Well, that's a whole separate subject. But it was, uh, at, at several junctures in his life, he donated uh, profits from important songs. He, 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 gave, uh, he gave the rights, the entire rights of the, of the great song Always mm-hmm. to, his, uh, to his, his second wife, Ellen, as a mm-hmm. wedding present. Well, let's let's talk about Ellen Mackey, or yeah, yeah, yeah. You got Mackey. Mackey, right? Clarence's Clarence's daughter, yes. somewhat unusual. Uh, you know, wealthy uh, Roman Catholic socialite and uh, kid right off the Bowery. Oh, more than unusual. <laughs> uh, they were the access Hollywood of the day. The sure. newspapers could, couldn't get enough of it because her father. Uh, refused to acknowledge the marriage, disinherited her, uh, although there was one part of, she had uh, one part uh, of her uh, inheritance, a trust fund, was untouchable by her father, so she wasn't she wasn't completely impoverished, but the gesture was there. The father uh, was an old-line anti-Semite, wouldn't acknowledge the marriage, and, uh, and they were in love, and and Berlin, by the way, was not only a Jew, uh, but he was fifteen years older than she, mm-hmm. and so 
was uh, it was a delicious scandal. The newspapers uh, uh, ran it and ran it and ran it, and uh, Irving and and Ellen became uh, very leery of very weary of being chased by uh, reporters all the time. It was, uh, but they were very much in love. Well, I think when they first met, she re- referred to his song as "What Shall I Do." As opposed to what'll I do? So it is grammar being corrected very early on. And that marriage endured, what, 50 some odd years? Uh, Longer than that. They were married in 26, and I think she died in 1963 years. Okay. And it was a very, very tiny rapprochement when they tragically lost their, their son, Irving Jr. Yes, one of the one of the several deep losses in Irving's life. Uh, he had three daughters. He had a, a, a baby son, born a few years before his uh, youngest daughter, uh, who in 1928. And at the age of three weeks, uh, baby Irving Berlin Jr. died, probably of crib death, on mm-hmm. Christmas Day, 1928, and, and ever afterwards, Christmas Day just uh, was a heart-sinkingly sad time for both Irving and Ellen. He seems to have somehow navigated it. We never sense all of that tragedy, certainly in the lyrics to some of his songs, but it didn't seem to overwhelm him. I think that he felt as deeply uh, as anybody else, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I I think the key thing about Berlin is that, and you can go back to, to Alexander's Ragtime Band, think of all the young men, he's 23 years old when he writes that song, and suddenly he's a millionaire, why not just start investing in, in uh, Duesenbergs and Chorus Girls, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, instead, he went right back to work. All his life, he was a thoroughgoing pro, and despite these overwhelming griefs uh, that assailed him at several terms, he, uh, he, he always just got back to work. Well, he uh, Hollywood called, and he began this wonderful collaboration and friendship with Fred Astaire in Top Hat. I'm in yep. heaven, as he and he. I always felt uh, that that Fred was a, a a great singer of lyric. You know, not a great voice, not Sinatra, not Tony Bennett per se, but he could deliver a song. I, I, I think he's one of, I think he is one of the great American singers. You, if you go on, if you go on lung power alone, mm-hmm. uh, then you might as well pick Frankie Lane. But, uh, but putting Frankie, Frankie Lane aside, who was an estimable performer, uh, uh, Fred Astaire really, really conveyed a lyric. He had that same gift, actually, that Sinatra did, only Sinatra had great voice as well. Of uh, of living in the song as he sang it, very, yeah, he was very- he was effortless. Not so much like Crosby, who was so effortless. I almost thought he was asleep at times. Yeah, but he he sang the way he danced. He glided. There was just a you know a, a soft voice, not a big voice, but wow, he understood and felt the music. He was a perfect vessel for Berlin's great movie songs. Yeah, yeah, uh, cheek to cheek specifically. Uh, and then in uh, 1942, uh, Holiday Inn, which was a, a kernel of a kernel of an idea, 
to make make a movie and uh, with a a particular hotel owned by Bing Crosby is only open on holidays. So although in those days we had both Washington and Lincoln's birthday, they had their own holiday. Yeah. Unlike where we are now, it's President's Day. But I, uh, the, the great or the immortal Y, the letter Frank Freeman, uh, said, wait, I can get George Murphy for 50000 I don't need 100000 for Fred Astaire. And the director, Mark Sandridge, said, hey, if you, if you give me George Murphy, there's no movie. And uh, I'm sure that uh, Irving was somewhat behind that as well. Uh, yes. No, it, 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 there was never anybody else for Holiday Inn uh, besides there, of course. Yeah, they wouldn't have made it. Which, you know, is such a piece of fluff, but yet is so uh, so delightful and a, an opportunity to pump in, what, 12 or 15 songs? Sorry, 15 holidays, yeah. I think, that we did. idea that Irving had had for, for many years of a, of a, mu- a musical built on uh, the, the holidays. Mm-hmm. Well, White Christmas. Uh, you know, there are generations of Jews who don't realize that this was that Christmas is a religious holiday. Lay this one at Irving. Uh, you know, when Bing Crosby uh, sang that song then and, and later, I mean, everyone knows it. And as uh, Philip Roth in Operation Shylock, uh, Shylock had, had talked about the fact that uh, so God gave Moses the Ten Commandments and he gave uh, Irving Berlin White Christmas and they totally secularized the holiday. Uh, well, he, he was, uh, Roth was a little... <laughs> a little more, <laughs> well, Roth is Roth. <laughs> uh, well, he's, yes, he was a little more on the nose. He, 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 he said that Berlin had de-Christed, right. de-Christed to major Christian holidays, Christmas and Easter, with uh, with White Christmas and Easter Parade. But but uh, Roth also called, putting aside Easter Parade for mm-hmm. a second, is not one of Berlin's great songs. It certainly has stood up and been a classic, uh, but it's, it's not a deep song. Uh, uh, White Christmas is a very deep song and a deeply strange song. And, uh, and, and I think it has, it, it's the, best-selling uh, uh, Crosby's recording of it, the best-selling record of all time for, uh, for reasons both understood and not understood. It is, uh, it's a powerful, powerful song, uh, a haunting song. Mm-hmm. And I think really implicitly, not explicitly, but implicitly refers to uh, the loss of Irving Berlin Jr. and the, the other uh, deep losses of Berlin's life. It's, it, it is, it's a sad, sad song, uh, deeply poignant. Well, you know, and in Crosby's case, uh, most important singer, certainly for 10 years prior to that, who uh, so dominated the, the radio waves, uh, and that's, that song just, you know, it was him in, in such a meaningful way with his little pipe and sitting there talking to Marjorie Reynolds before she uh, married William Bendix in The Life of Riley. And, uh, you know, you can't help but feel it, you know. I mean, even even Jews feel this song at Christmas. You know, it, it's it's in the repertoire. You you kind of you know remember New York with the boots and the fur and the trees and you yeah, know and it's the, the, the smell of hot chestnuts on the on the on the on the street near Rockefeller Center. Well, another another song written by Jews for Christmas that was Mel Torme's song, "Chestnuts yes. Roasting on an Open Fire." There's an there's an album, I guess, of songs uh, written by Jews for Christian holidays, particularly for that. <laughs> Uh, well, this has been great. What uh, we could, 
we, we haven't even got into any any get your gun and the blue skies and the uh, anything you can do I can do better and on and on and on. Uh, we've only touched on a few of these fifteen hundred songs. Uh, what would you what would you hope that people who did not know a great deal about uh, Irving Berlin uh, get from this read? I I would hope uh, that 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 people who only everybody knows God bless America sure. and White everybody knows those two songs and probably a lot of people if not most people know that those two songs were written by a person named Irving, Irving Berlin I would hope that people would see that over an astonishing 60-year career, uh, a truly astonishing 60-year career, uh, Berlin wrote uh, so many great songs. Uh, and I would hope that, I would hope people would get a little more deeply into it and, and, and learn about some of these great songs. I mean, not only uh, Cheek to Cheek, but Let's Face Them and Dance and Isn't This a Lovely Day, Blue Skies, for God's sake, right. what a life. A pretty what will I do if you should go away? I'll be blue. What'll I do? Yeah, the real estate is going to grab you for for mulling those lyrics, Terrence. <laughs> <laughs> well, but if they're in, you know, the lyrics may be slightly off, but the uh, the sentiment was there. Did I yes. did I maul the lyric? Did I completely maul? <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> You, you, you scuffed them up a little bit, okay. but, but, but yes, the spirit was certainly there. So spirit was there, yeah. yeah. Anyway, Jane, this is this has been great. Um, so it, yeah, it's been great to catch up, and at some point in the future, we'll we'll spend three hours and talk about uh, Sinatra, beginning I with look, the voice. Look forward to that, Terrence. That would be I, great. Well, I look forward to taking your hand uh, in, in real life in Paris. It's in Paris. Yeah, it would be fabulous. We'll figure out we'll go someplace and have a. Thank you again. Bye-bye.